The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Tom Fishburne, author of Your Ad Ignored Here, cartoons from 15 years of marketing, business, and doodling in meetings, and creator of Marketunist. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which is named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, which is also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And marketingbookpodcast.com is also where you can send me a message with any comments, suggestions, or recommendations for the show. I love hearing from listeners like you from around the world. I'm also on Twitter. My Twitter handle is marketingbook, or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. I respond to every single message I get from listeners, so please introduce yourself. And now, a word from our sponsor, which is where I work. It's a business-to-business marketing agency called Artillery. The companies that call in Artillery are typically frustrated with traditional interruptive marketing's declining ability to generate good sales leads and are overwhelmed with how best to use digital and content marketing to break through to the modern informed buyer. So if your company is struggling with transitioning to modern marketing, our all-hands workshop, buyer persona interviews, and content marketing plan may be just what you need to get unstuck and on the right track toward getting more qualified leads and more profitable sales. For more information, visit marketingbookpodcast.com. Now, on to today's interview. Today, we welcome Tom Fishburne to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, Your Ad Ignored Here, cartoons from 15 years of marketing, business, and doodling in meetings. Tom is the creator of the popular cartoon, The Marketoonist. He started cartooning on the backs of business cases as a student at Harvard Business School while in various marketing roles later at General Mills, Nestle, Method, and Hotel Tonight. Tom parodied the world of marketing in a weekly cartoon, and his cartoons grew by word of mouth to reach 100,000 business readers each week, and they've been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, Forbes, and the New York Times. Tom later realized that cartoons are a remarkable form of shareable media. He launched Marketoonist, the company, to help small and large businesses such as Google and GE reach their audiences with cartoons. Tom's a frequent keynote speaker on innovation, marketing, and creativity using cartoons, case studies, and his marketing career to tell the story visually. And, interesting fact, he met the woman he would marry, his wife, in Prague. Tom, congratulations on your ad ignored here, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. So was your wife from Prague or 
No, no, she was an American like me who moved there in the mid '90s when you know, you know, a few years after the wall came down, a lot of Americans flocked to to Prague, and we were two of them. And we met there. I met her my second day in Prague. Lived in Prague for about a year. Had an amazing experience, and then moved back to the states together. So it's been a serendipitous, circuitous journey from there. So if you're a single listener, you might want to go to Prague. <laughs> Work for me. Travel. So she's from the United States. You could have just met her here, but instead you go to Prague. Yeah, we like, we like the long, hard, stupid way of uh, doing things. Sure, sure. Well, that's good. So let me ask you something. You mentioned in the book, in the introduction, that you started doing a cartoon at Harvard Business School, I think in the a weekly strip for the school paper. And you talk about how you got to one of your classes and the professor was Francis Fry. That's right. And I guess the professor put your cartoon up on an overhead projector and you were very surprised and everyone in the class laughed. So you got some feedback from the audience and you, you said you received your first Harvard Business School cold call. What, what was that? Yeah, that's really a rite of passage. I think in a lot of business schools, but Harvard is definitely known for them. I think they invented it. And a cold call is basically where the professor singles out one student at the beginning of the class. And then that person who suddenly has 80 sets of eyes on him or her has to basically kick off the class and talk about whatever we were supposed to have read the night before and give a strategic summary of the challenge at hand and you're basically in the hot seat for a good 15 minutes. And it fills you with panic and terror, but it's also a pretty good experience. And so you always wonder what's going to set off the, the, the professor for them to actually pick you. And you, you know, the moment of the cold call, everyone's usually, usually trying to make themselves invisible. And for that particular class, I had just made fun of her in a cartoon. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. <laughs> so I guess you didn't get called on a few times each semester. Yeah, I was sort of asking for it, but it was great. Yeah. She she was a, she was a great sport. It was, I was kind of making fun of a few of the of the classes that we had taken, and I didn't think anyone really read the cartoons or read the paper. I was finally submitted the cartoons on after being being nudged by the uh, the editor who was a friend of mine, and then after that that moment, I was hooked, and now. Professor Fry has one of my cartoons hanging up in her office. She's been been a very supportive. Oh, wow. So if anyone's ever seen the movie The Paper Chase about Harvard Law School, I can only imagine it was maybe some variation of that. It's pretty intense, and you definitely want to keep a low profile in the class. That's right. <laughs> so the foreword to the book is written by Anne Handley, who is the author of Everybody Writes. She was one of the very first guests that I was able to get on the Marketing Book Podcast, and she's also the co-author of Content Rules. And I just wanted to read a quick excerpt from it here. She says, in your ad ignored here, Tom gently lampoons and lightly pokes fun at marketing and marketers over the past 15 years. If you've been in marketing for any of that time or longer, like I have, you'll recognize yourself and people you know in these cartoons. On the one hand, this is a simple collection of drawings depicting the pedestrian workaday lives of marketers. It is also much more powerful than that because the situations and characters Tom portrays are universal. You'll nod your head along as you read these cartoons, in other words. But even more than that, this book reads like a time capsule of marketing since 2002, where Tom first started drawing of these some 200 business illustrations as a hobby when he was associate marketing manager at General Mills. In other words, if marketing kept a diary, 
this would be it. So, Tom, you're, you're a cartoonist and you observed marketing, but you're also a keen observer of marketers, <laughs> <laughs> and, which is why, of course, the cartoons have resonated for so long. What are some of the big changes that you've noticed about marketing in, well, maybe even more than just the past 15 years? I mean, while you're going through it, it sometimes may not be as easy to notice it, but what are some of the bigger currents that you've seen change in marketing? Yeah, great question. So I I definitely observe other marketers, but a lot of the cartoons are really driven by whatever I'm trying to grapple with. And I found very early on, it seemed like marketing had was in a position of change. And that change only accelerated in the last 15 years, every quarter, every year, every month, it seemed like something new was coming along that we had to figure out how to grapple with as marketers. And so the cartoon started out as a bit of a diary for me to capture what some of these things were. And some of those you might, you know, immediately recognize the arrival of social media. How do you, how do you think about that from the standpoint of a brand? You know, the arrival of data-driven marketing. How do you think about that as a marketer? And so every time something would come along, I try to think about how to address it in my own marketing life. And I found a lot of the humor and the friction of of marketers figuring out how to move forward and do what we've always done, which is which is market products and services and tell stories and and uh, introduce brands to, to consumers. How do we do that with all these different new tools and technologies? And what I learned along the way is that there were some bigger shifts happening underneath it all that while it was really exciting to see all of these incredibly powerful new tools and technologies arrive that let us interact with with our audiences like never before, there was, there were some other undercurrents and changes predominantly around the mindset of marketers. And the, the, it's, some of it's kind of captured a little bit in the title of the book, Your Ad Ignore Here, which is that there's a fundamental assumption that I think a lot of marketers were instructed on, whether in, in, in their, their universities or their business schools or in their on-the-job training, that, that, that you could somehow find a captive audience. And I know from my experience, one of my the first brands I worked on was Green Giant, and it was one of those classic advertising icons from the last century. And you know, it's the quintessential sort of Mad Men type of brand. And I arrived at my desk, and I found this creative brief. I found all this brand history, and one of the pieces that I found was a creative brief, literally written by a young Leo Burnett. And a lot of the assumptions that went into that, I found fascinating. Um, one of those being that you had sort of a captive audience. You had at that time, you know, three television stations to get your marketing message out into the world. And what I found over the last 15 years is, is that there is no such thing as a captive audience anymore. And so we have to, as marketers, create marketing that is fundamentally worth sharing that people actually that, that there are actually messages that resonate to the audiences that we're trying to reach. And that if you, if that mindset change doesn't happen, but you just adopt the new technologies, it's not going to be nearly as successful. And that's where a lot of the humor is, where I think sometimes brands take a Don Draper type of mindset to something that's new and it does and it misfires. And so a lot of my cartoons are geared toward poking fun at some of that friction. Oh, okay. Yeah, now I see. I'm starting to see where some of the gold is mined, having gone through the book and, and seen your cartoons over the years. I think we could probably end the, our interview right there. 
Because you said there's no such thing as a captive audience anymore. I may actually carve that one in stone because I I sometimes refer to it as this hundred-year muscle memory (laughs) that marketers (laughs) seem to have, thinking that you know people are going to be interested in in what they're creating. Yes, their their moms aren't even going to be interested. That's right. I remember. Yeah, I remember catching when I worked at General Mills, catching my wife kind of eating a bowl of Kellogg's cereal, and thinking, "How can you do this?" But you know, as marketers, we sometimes we we live, breathe, eat, sleep our brands. And we can sometimes think that the audiences we're trying to reach do the same thing. And the reality is people you know, are just very busy in their lives. I, I did a cartoon once that imagined if you were to do a brain scan of your consumer and uh, you know the classic image of the brain and the things that are on that consumer's mind. And it has you know, her family and her kids and her pets and her job it's and all these things. The yeah. yeah. And, and there's, and there's a conference table of marketers saying, you know, wait, wait, our brand of pickle relish isn't anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of our one of our loyalists. What's up with that? I think that being a marketer myself and then spending time with a lot of marketers, I think that sometimes we forget what it's like to wear the customer hat as opposed to the marketer hat. <laughs> it's a good, so it's a good, it's a good reminder. There was another cartoon, of course, I can't find it at the moment. There was a marketer talking about what the brand means to the consumer. And it goes through all these different stages of different kinds of people. And then it shows the consumer. And all I can think about is whatever's in the fridge. Right, right. (laughs) That was a companion piece to that one. So, yeah, that's terrific. Do you think that the perception of marketers and marketing has changed much by you know, non-marketers, let's say management. Yes. I think that that's constantly in flux. I think that, and it depends really on the different organizations as well. I think that marketers have gone through periods of not really having a seat at the table to periods where they now have amazing new tools and technologies that give them an incredibly valuable seat at the table. And I think that sometimes organizations can understand the importance of long-term brand building and other times where the focus is very much on short-term, you know, what's the easiest way to drive sales. And so it's part of, I think a marketer has to stay pretty nimble to adapt in all those different scenarios. And, you know, it's no surprise that the revolving door for CMOs is so quick <laughs> because the expectations are sort of ever ever changing. But I grew, my, my early marketing training was in consumer packaged goods. And in those types of organizations, oftentimes uh, the marketers are thought of as general managers. That you know, my job title at General Mills was associate marketing manager, but my real responsibilities were to operate a portion of a business as if it were my own business looking over the full P&L and having a lot of cross-functional counterparts and all that type of stuff. I think that it was actually, I, I learned a lot from that. And I tried to bring that to other places where I've worked that ultimately, I think that brands are composed of every single person on the extended organization that touches them. And that if you're a marketer, it's really useful not to get too siloed and to step out instead from from very narrow roles, you know, outbound marketing, you know, performance marketing, and and really think of yourself from the full holistic sense of how are you telling a brand story. And the more you do that, the more you influence everybody in the organization. And at the end of the day, everything that an organization does is a form of marketing. And so if your job, if you if you are really good at rallying the, the extended organization to think of all these other things as marketing beyond just, you know, the, the freestanding insert in the paper or the email campaign, 
campaign, then you're really making a, a huge impact. But I think I think marketers can sometimes do themselves a disservice by being too siloed and too narrowly focused on one particular tactic. And uh, if they really think about the holistic sense, then then uh, it, it's an incredibly important seat at the table. Very well said. And it brings to mind another book that had on the podcast called The 12 Powers of a Marketing Leader by Thomas Barta and Patrick Barwise. Barta was a McKinsey partner. And it's about this massive study they did about marketers. And those that were doing particularly well these days, meaning in the last four or five years, they have this certain marketing leadership capability where they understand that they're not going to have all the authority they should, and they get out of that silo that you're talking about, and they walk the halls, and they go around sort of evangelizing what they do and what the impact they can have, and they all have a keen understanding of how what they do affects revenue. And once they're able to start talking revenue and how what they do contributes to revenue, they've got a place at that table, and the C-suite's been looking for somebody who could do that for them. I think that's a really great way to think about it. I, I sometimes, I mean, we know the expression for managing by influence. And I think marketing by influence is actually a big part of the job because oftentimes, like you said, your your marketing is is uh, is ultimately affected by those who are not direct reports. You have to really inspire them. And I learned, you know, early on on, you know, consumer packaged goods brands were great training for this because, you know, you are making physical things in factories and there are a lot of people, a lot of people's hands are touching those, those products or touching those marketing executions. And I learned that product launches tended to go better if I was willing to be in an ice cream factory at four in the morning wearing a hairnet and a hard hat because I could uh, get to know the people who were responsible for making sure that the flavor you know, came across in its best light, for instance. And so I think marketers that really think in a real broad, holistic sense about what they do, they can, they can make a bigger impact. Yeah, and doing door checks and going on sales calls, going out with your sales team. I've heard from so many salespeople that say, you know, the marketers, I'm not even sure I've ever met them. Right. <laughs> or I, they've never gone out with me to visit a, a customer. And those that do really start to become, you know, much better, much better marketers, I would think. So I have this enormous, uh, obviously, admiration for people who write books. I just, you know, it's, it's, I, I don't think I could do it. But, but people who do cartoons, it seems like it's almost more difficult. And it brought to mind that quote, dying is easy, comedy is hard. <laughs> I love and, that. you know, it's sort of like, you know, you've run the Iron Man or something. And so what is it about cartoons that really resonate with, with people more than other types of things that marketers could be using? Oh, great question. Well, I've, I've always loved cartoons since I was a little kid. I was sort of the I was the one who was on the floor using taking silly putty and transferring cartoons over to a fresh sheet of paper and trying to make them my own. And so I've always loved the medium. And for me, I think and I think for a lot of people, I see myself in a cartoon. There's sort of you have words, you have pictures, and then the reader has to put the two together and and figure out what's going on. There's often a lot unsaid in a cartoon that in figuring it out, that's where the humor lies. And so it's a participatory medium where I think the best cartoons, people see themselves in them. They reflect some sort of shared worldview or something that they're going through. And it's the reason why people tack cartoons up to their refrigerators or their cubicle walls, because it says something about them. And I, I love the medium for that. I, also, the fact that in order to, to, to really develop something as a cartoon, you have to go through an incredible act of simplification. You have to simplify down to the bare essence of what you're trying to communicate. And that's, 
a very challenging at times, but really fun exercise for me to try to take a complex situation and distill it down to its simplest form that then has humor attached to it. And when it, when I managed to come up with a cartoon that, that makes, that makes me laugh and, and, and communicate something, it's, it's like the best feeling ever. But I think there's that, there's an old saying I heard that I didn't have time to Oh, I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one. Yeah, perfect. Exactly. <laughs> and I, I think that that's one of the things I, I love about it. It's, it's curated, inherently curated. And I feel like we're in a, in a time now where a lot of people are producing, you know, quote unquote content more than ever before, but there's not, there's not enough curation. A lot of it is more about quantity rather than quality. And I, yes. like, I like something in the, in the very medium of cartoons that it forces you to do some curation to, to encapsulate a story in its simplest form. And it brings to mind that notion of it's, it's simple to make things hard. Right, <laughs> just, right. just ask any engineer you've worked with. No kidding. I'm just kidding. I love the engineers, but it's hard to make things simple. Yeah. But when you can, you know, it's like hacking away at a block of granite or something, creating a, a you know, a reductive. <laughs> it's, it's very difficult to do that. And but let me ask you though, in terms of using cartoons as a tactic, I don't, I don't see it done all that often. And I think it's in part because it's so difficult. But when you see marketers trying to use cartoons, what are some of the mistakes that you see brands making? Where does it go off the rails? Seems like it. Maybe that. Maybe it's not used that much because it just it rarely you, you rarely are able to get the uh, lightning in a bottle. I'm seeing more and more more and more brands think about the cartoon medium. But you're right; it's totally under the radar. What's interesting to me is that it's actually a pretty a pretty old kind of medium of communication and has a long history with advertising. If you go back, you know, 50 years, cartoons were often used, whether animated or still, to somehow talk about talk about brands. I, I found a, a vintage book that VW car dealerships would give away in the 50s when they bought when you bought your new VW, just filled with single panel cartoons reflecting the lives of VW owners. And I thought it was really great. Oh, wow. um, and so I think that there's that there's a lot, I think in some ways, there's never been a better time for cartoons in any form of communication because there's more, there's so much clutter out there and it's the simplest shorthand version of a way to communicate something. But I think that that sometimes when I'm talking with business leaders about cartoons, when they think of cartoons, they think of things for kids, they think of things that are really slapstick they wonder how humor can fit with a brand like theirs. And they sometimes have some preconceptions about what cartoons can be that are, are kind of limiting. And oftentimes when we're talking and I, and I and we talk about, you know, The New Yorker, for instance, like there's, you know, sophisticated humor that can relate to a lot of different situations. There's a lot of ways that cartoons, I think, can go to places that people don't necessarily think. The longest running campaign that we've been running with with an organization is, is with a company called Kronos, and they make workforce management software. And they reach people who are in HR and in organizational areas that you wouldn't think would would uh, would have a lot of room for a, you know, necessarily a sense of humor or talking about HR issues that way. But actually, it's been a, been a really good fit, partly because it's kind of unexpected and it and it humanizes something that's technical and complex. 
And so I'm, I'm of the point of view, I, I love cartoons. I just love to think about ways that they can be used. And I, I'm finding more and more organizations that are looking for some way to simplify complex stories. But you're right, it's, it's not mainstream. You know, if you, you think about, you know, infographics kind of turned into something that became very mainstream and then every, and became something almost everybody had for a period of time. And then there was an oversaturation of them. But I feel like cartoons are still a little bit under the radar. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Years ago, I worked on these big agencies in, on on Madison Avenue, and I had worked on a toothpaste account at one point. And the client insisted on these really heavy-handed. I mean, they were assuming there was a captive audience. It was this heavy-handed ad that would say the name of the product in the headline, and and then it cleans better than. And they would put their competitor's name in the headline. It was just really hand-fisted. <laughs> and later, I was on another account that wasn't personal products. We were advertising in the New Yorker, as a matter of fact. I was happy to tell the rep, I said, you know, we just got to talk about different kinds of clients. And I was telling her about this experience on the toothpaste account. She then sent me a framed cartoon that had been in the New Yorker, and you talked about sophisticated humor, but it was a picture of an ad guy in the client's office, and he had two big ads. And one of them said, you know, something like, we try harder or something like that. And the other ad said, buy it, asshole. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the client says and the one that said buy it assholes he's already set that down and the client says let me see that first one again <laughs> oh that's so good i'll put a picture of that in the show notes for this episode at marketingbookpodcast.com but it's funny how how the power of cartoons and also there's another author i had on the show Stu Heinick, who wrote how to get a meeting with anyone and he had been a cartoonist for yeah Maybe you know him. I haven't met him personally, but I know his work. And he he wrote this book about how he had used cartoons just to get into major publications that would then hire him for this doing direct mail cartoons and all that sort of thing. And he he says, look, not everyone should try and send a cartoon to to get in and get a sales meeting. But he talked about the power that it had. And it worked for him because he was a cartoonist and and he knew how to do that. So, But but in terms of, you know, sharing, you invite people to use your cartoons for free, I want to be specific here, on their personal blogs and on social media, but for if they want to use your cartoons for business purposes, they need to license it just like for a stock photo. And you've got all the prices on your site. But sharing is something that fascinates me. And of course, it has so much to do now with social media. What do you think uh, makes a cartoon more shared than others? It's a good question. I think I find it really hard to predict ahead of time which cartoons are going to be the most shared, which is one of the things I love about the cartooning medium that is that it's inherently serial in nature that I, I take some of the stress off myself because I don't have to worry about any one particular cartoon being the one that quote unquote goes viral. I know that if I have an ongoing cadence and for me, I send out a cartoon every Monday, people know that, that they're going to see one every Monday. And there's, there's sort of like, if I miss it one week, there'll be one the next. And so that serial component I find really useful. And one of the things I've noticed, the ones that really seem to resonate and are most likely to be shared is if it reflects some sort of pain point that the audience is experiencing, and this gives them a way to put it in words. <laughs> and but so, not necessarily send it to the boss. Sometimes. Um, oh. yeah, some, I think a lot of people do. I think you can sometimes say things in a cartoon that would be, that if you said it to someone's face, they might get offended or like it could be a little too provocative. 
But in a cartoon, you're laughing and you you have a little bit more freedom to say things that are that could be hard to say another way. And I I hear from a lot of people that they use my cartoons in meetings to share with their coworkers or their bosses or whatever. Actually, in one case. I got uh, an inquiry from somebody who worked at a large organization, and she asked me to create a series of cartoons specifically about some of the issues in her organization, but not to let on that it was from her or anyone inside the company that fed it <laughs> wow. to me because she wanted she wanted ammunition but didn't want to catch any flack. And um, were any of them uh, cartoons you may have already done? Uh, no, in this case, she had used a few that I had already done, but there were some specific things with the with the org structure that they had that she wow. wanted me to touch on. And they weren't like I, I don't do things that are poison pen, but they wanted she wanted just wanted some ammunition. She wanted some way to poke at stuff and felt like in that organizational culture, she didn't want to get blowback, which I understand. But I do find that com- cartoons can be great conversation starters. They're good icebreakers. They get people li- laughing. But I always like to. I, I try to make sure that I don't just go for humor in my cartoons, but there's also some sort of message or some sort of like, so what then? And and it's usually something I'm grappling with. And it's very frequently something that's not obvious. I don't want to, I try not to, to, to make it look like somebody's being stupid in the cartoon. It's more a case of like, we're all trying to grapple with how to make use of, you know, new technologies or, or to adapt. And I want to, I want to highlight what that challenge is so that it can spark conversations. And I hear, sometimes I see the conversation play out. People write comments on my blog uh, or they email me. And in other cases, I hear, you know, secondhand how, you know, I was in such and such a meeting and your cartoon came up on the screen. Or I hear from people that they that they use the cartoons for internal communication. In some cases, I, I, I sometimes get hired by large organizations to create a series of cartoons about change management and then they use it as part of their training, which is fun mm-hmm. too. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's such a, a thin or, or invisible line that you, you try not to cross. You talked about how you see yourself in a cartoon. And there was a time years ago where I was working in an agency and I, I just, I, it was soul crushing. I hated it. <laughs> it was not good. And I had to stop reading Dilbert because it just, it, it wasn't, it wasn't funny anymore because it was so... <laughs> He was just picking at that scab every Sunday yeah. when I would see it. And I guess maybe because of that, I then then maybe go off and start start my own business. And we can talk about when you started yours. But what other kind of little guardrails do you put on yourself so that you don't get people in too much pain? I try not to be too cynical. and I, and I I But I also I want to touch on stuff that's real. I, I really think about that a lot. And I don't always know what the line is. But my hope is, my hope is, and what I hear from most people is that they find it, they find it really, really funny and cathartic. And I try again not to use a poison pen, but really just to poke at what some of the challenges are. And I'm not making fun of anybody else, but really myself. If I'm ever, if, it, if there's ever anything that's the butt of the joke in the cartoon, it's usually some point of view that I share where I'm trying to grapple with what's the way forward forward here. And, um, and I hear back from people that the, you know, the laughter on some of these issues is cathartic, that there's, that there's something that's, uh, that's nice to hear that everyone's kind of going through the same sort of challenges and issues and, and, uh, and opportunities. And that shared humor is, I think, where some of the fun is. Yeah, I, I find that your work is a little bit like a support group because I'm going through it and I'm thinking, oh, God, I am not alone. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not the only one that's suffering there. So, you know, the healing has begun. But let me ask you, have you had some unexpectedly controversial reactions? I mean, have you have you gotten in trouble with any of your cartoons? It's funny, when I started at General Mills, all of my coworkers were convinced I was going to be fired. 
Like it was just, they had started to like a Deadpool. Like oh, dates. because of the cartoons, yeah, or? yeah, because they, you know, I'd send it out I, at, the, at that time. I, I would send it not out because of your misbehavior. Otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> no, fortunately not. No, from the cartoon, I would send it out during the workday, and you'd see people's heads pop above the cubicles, like the prairie dog effect, when it would come out. Think you know, and uh, you know, because people would see it, and I was I was deliberately trying, I, I had worked in small organizations and suddenly I found myself at General Mills. And my point of view was, I'm going to just be me. And if anyone takes offense, you know, I hope they don't. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be deliberately, you know, like I said, poison pen about it. But I also want to be honest about some of the marketing issues that are going on. So we were convinced I was going to get fired. And, and, you know, after a couple of weeks, I got a, um, I got a message from, the executive assistant to the chief marketing officer saying that he wanted to see me and everyone was convinced that was it. I should back up my files and everything. And it went and clean up your office. Right. <laughs> Box up your stuff. <laughs> but I marched over there and instead he wanted to take me out to lunch and get to know me better and said he really loved the cartoons. He hoped I never stopped it. And I found that sometimes in organizations we can be so fearful of of uh, rocking the boat that we end up, you know, being a little too risk adverse, and I, and that taught me something not to hold hold back. I mean, again, I don't try to attack anybody specifically yeah. or anything specifically, but occasionally people do read things in the cartoons because they see themselves in it. They bring their own issues and histories and baggage, and and so th- from time to time, I get notes from people about something that I never intended to be to be a part of a part of a cartoon or it was interpreted for a particular situation, and you know, and and I and it's it's hard sometimes to get to get feedback because it's hard for me to parse out what really is an issue with the cartoon versus what somebody uh, has from their own experience. But by and large, it's been overwhelmingly positive. Um, I think the, the, the weirdest use case I came across was when, uh, after Edward Snowden released all those top secret NSA documents, oh, that's right. I started getting, I got to start getting all these emails from people I'd never met saying, do you know that your a couple of your cartoons are in these NSA presentations? And, uh, sure enough on WikiLeaks, my, you know, my cartoons are there. And, um, you know, I certainly never intended that use case, but uh-huh. you know, they, they saw something in the cartoons that related to, uh, you know, that there was about technology adoption or something but that that just goes to show people bring their own stuff into a cartoon and you I have no idea where they where where they'll go or often how they'll be used or interpreted but it's yeah. I I try to focus again that's why I find it useful to focus on whatever I'm grappling with because it's ultimately a, it's it's a little bit like a personal diary that I've made public for everybody in terms of marketing and I keep it yes. within the rails of marketing but I keep it you know I try to keep it focused on things that I personally have uh, have struggled with or dealt with or are trying to learn from uh-huh. I worked at, at actually it was that same agency I, I mentioned earlier. There was a, a creative director and he was a cartoonist and he's now a, he's still a cartoonist. He does uh, political cartoons, but he would sit there in these meetings and I mean, they were pretty painful meetings right out of the movie Office Space, which I think was, came out about that same time. <laughs> and he would sit there and draw cartoons of the people across the table. And so I started to see some of these cartoons of me being drawn and I thought they were pretty funny, but what I started doing was sitting next to him in the meetings. <laughs> so I, so it, it solved two things. A, I, he stopped drawing cartoons of me. But B, uh, I was able to watch who he was drawing. And it was immensely entertaining, you know, for a long, boring meeting. I so, bet. Well, I do often hear, I, I would often hear in meetings, like we, they, we'd get started on a particular topic and somebody would say, oh, no, this is going to end up in one of Tom's cartoons. Oh, right, right. Well, listen, one, one other question I wanted to ask was, you – Talk about a long, strange trip. I mean, you you were at Harvard Business School, and you were at these blue-chip companies working in marketing, and then you 
you you you went off and started your own gig doing cartoons and you've got your own agency now that was kind of a a big leap was there a lot of soul searching or fear or did you just finally say that's it i i just got to go do my thing it was um it was a long journey <laughs> it was hard and i think it's hard for anyone who goes off and does something on their own and it was made harder by the fact that it was to do something with cartoons which you know it sounds so improbable you know, going from, you know, Harvard Business School to, you know, to drawing cartoons. But I kept finding more and more success with the cartoons. I was doing this as a nights and weekend hobby. And this audience was growing. And then suddenly I found out that I could make money at it. And and all these big companies were calling me to, to do something cartoon related. And so I was doing things on a moonlighting basis, you know, beyond my day job. And that momentum there was was really picking up. And I started to think maybe there's a time to, to see if I can turn this into a business. And I went through the process of thinking what a business model would look like and how do I want to grow this and what types of clients would I have? And that part was easier ultimately than, than actually pulling the trigger and jumping. But that was, that was the hardest thing was to, to go in and, uh, and give up my day job and my, my weekly you know, salary to, to like go do something off on my own. I, I found it really tough. And I think everyone I've talked to who goes off and does something entrepreneurial, that's, that's a real struggle. When do you know when to, to jump? And um, in my case, I met an entrepreneur who had done this a few times, and he wrote an analogy that I found really useful, which is something he called the V1 marker. And he said that there's uh, that if that if you're a pilot and you're taking off on a runway, there's this point called V1 speed where where you're where you basically take off. It's the point of no return. You're sort of you either take off or you crash. And he he sort of advised every would-be entrepreneur to think of what their V1 marker would be. Like what would need to be true in order for you to leave your job and do whatever you're working on? What are those specific criteria? And then when you've written those down, then you then you work toward that. And suddenly when those criteria are true, then it's time. And it takes away the the decision of, oh my gosh, is it now or am I am I really ready? And uh, and that helped me a lot. So I had I had a V1 marker I wrote down, and it involved I wanted to have moonlighting revenue at half my salary. I wanted to have a business plan to get to the remaining half within a year. I wanted to have my wife's support, and I wanted to have a home equity line of credit, so I had a little cushion. And all those things happened, and suddenly it was time to jump, and it was terrifying, but I did, and I'm so glad that I did because it, uh, my life in the last seven years that I've been able to make this more or less full time, has been incredibly rewarding, and I've learned so much. And as marketing has evolved, I've, you know, I've been able to to work on so many different brands and marketing campaigns as they've as they've grappled grappled with some of these issues. But I do it with wearing both a, a marketing hat and a cartoony hat, which has been great. <laughs> Right. Yeah. You know, when I went off and started my company, I guess a year before you, I did in 2001. Looking back, I remember there was such great agony and pain leading up to the point where I said, I'm going to go in and and quit today. You know, in other words, but once I made that decision, actually it was before I went in to quit, but once I made that decision, suddenly the like a big weight was lifted from my shoulders. At that point, I could go off and do what I was going to do, but just making the decision was really the hardest 
part. After that, I couldn't have been more excited. Exactly. Yes, I agree. And there are moments where you think, oh my gosh, what have I done? But you focus, uh, you focus on the work and doing the next thing and that, that feeling goes away and, and it's been, and it's been a great journey for me. And plus I get to work with my wife, which is a real, a real joy (laughs) and a privilege. And, you know, we work out of a cartoon studio in the backyard and the kids come in and draw on the whiteboard after school. And there's so many other side benefits that come with it that I really enjoy. That's terrific. Yeah. Tom, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I think it's the fact that in relation to what we were talking about earlier, that we're not in it alone, that we're all as marketers going through very similar issues and challenges. And the playbook of yesterday can be ripped up and thrown out tomorrow. And then you work on the next one. It's a constant state of change. And I think Mm -hmm. as marketers, we need to remain curious and remain open to the challenges that happen and remain excited about what, about what marketing would look like tomorrow. And so I hope people get a sense of that looking over the last 15 years of cartoons, the journey that we've been on, but we've been on it collectively and hopefully laughing at very similar situations. Mm, well said. So what books have inspired your work and career? There are a few marketing books that come to mind, and, and, and but also a few books about being creative and, and, and pushing myself from a creative standpoint. And those are the ones I tend to tend to spend most time with. There's a wonderful book called The War of Art by Stephen oh, yeah. Pressfield. And it's about... It's about breaking through what he describes as the resistance that gets in the way of you and and the most challenging version of what you're trying to do to push through the resistance. So I found that book just incredibly cathartic. I'll probably read that one every year. I recently read Steve Martin's autobiography, Born Standing Up, which I found riveting about humor and about creativity and being a creative person. And then probably one of the best marketing books that I've read is also an entrepreneurial book. It's not widely in print, but I really like it. And it's about the, the start of a business called the Republic of Tea, which there were two founders who happened to sit next to each other on an airplane. And this was in the days of fax machines. When they, when they launched the business, they were living in different cities and they would just fax their ideas back and forth to each other. And the book is simply a collection of those faxes. And I find that really riveting to see in a very transparent way what these entrepreneurs were thinking about with the business and making bad decisions and making good decisions and how a business comes to life. And probably the third one I'd mention is is Eating the Big Fish, which is the classic book on challenger thinking. That really helped shape a lot of my thinking coming out of General Mills and Nestle and then going to a challenger brand like Method. I found um, I found that really interesting how you can be a small brand and punch harder than your weight. Mm, great. Great recommendations, and two of those I was not familiar with. So now you've just added two more books to my reading list, Tom. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so are there any recent or upcoming books that you've heard about that can forward to seeing come out? or, or to When I'm at the drafting table, actually drawing the cartoons, it helps to have podcasts uh, that I'm listening to, other visual, you know, auditory stimulus. Certainly this podcast is one of them, but I, I one of the other ones I, I really enjoy are, is, is Mark Maron's podcast, where he interviews a lot of creative thinkers on their process. And he, he has a book coming out in October, and it's a distillation of some of the lessons that he, he's learned from all these different podcasts. So that's pretty high on my list. Oh, wow. I got to check that out. Yeah. And then there's a, uh, I mentioned Eating the Big Fish, the Challenger book, uh, which is a real influence on me. The, the, the author of that, Adam Morgan, co-authored a book with Mark Barden called A Beautiful Constraint. 
I think it came out maybe a year and a half, two years ago, and it's next on my list. It's about trying to turn your limitations into advantages from a marketing perspective. And I'm really enamored with challenger brands and how, because there's so much changing in the world of marketing, um, marketers have to really adapt quickly. Often the often the brands that adapt the quickest are some of the smaller ones, and that can create an opportunity to punch harder than your weight. And so I find I find uh, stories of challenger brands really inspiring. And so that that book is next on my my marketing list. Ah, oh, this is going to be a great. A great list on your show notes. Definitely going to be doing some homework here. We'll have links to all these at marketingbookpodcast.com. So I think that, I don't know how, how to get the word out, but your book would be a great Christmas gift for the marketer on your list. Sadly, my wife doesn't listen to this podcast, <laughs> so I'll, I'll, but I'll be suggesting some ways that could, she could uh, maybe pick up your book for Christmas. But how best can listeners learn more about you and the, the new book? The best place is probably marketunist.com, where I post each cartoon every week. The book will be there. All the cartoons I've done over the last 15 years are there. I also every week write a a few hundred words on what inspired the cartoon and some thoughts on brands that are doing things interesting. So there's a lot of surrounding story that's there. And then I, I publish it, you know, from there you can sign up for the email list and all the social media channels that, that are, I use to basically get the cartoons out every week, drawing people back to those, to those articles. Mm-hmm. Super. Marketunist.com. We'll make sure to have a link to that uh, on the show notes. The name of the book is Your Ad Ignored Here, Cartoons from 15 Years of Marketing, Business, and doodling in meetings. The author is Tom Fishburne. Tom, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real treat. And that closes the book on episode 145 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. And that's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And if you have any feedback on or suggestions to improve the show, or perhaps if I can make a book recommendation, I'd love to hear from you. I love hearing from the listeners. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or tweet at me. My Twitter handle is marketingbook. Or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. And please join us next time as we welcome Allison Stratton to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the new book she has co-authored with her husband, Scott, Unbranding, 100 Branding Lessons for the Age of Disruption. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. 